Hey everyone, welcome to Good Wolf Radio. It's Jerry Scarlato, founder and fitness coach of Thrivology in Alexandria, Kentucky. Today we conclude our conversation on movement. We've talked so far about how movements, how humans became evolved for movement and why movement was so important in our evolution, why walking on two legs allowed us to be able to forage better and to move long distances, why being upright allows us to extend our legs better, and why cooling ourselves off again allows us to be able to travel long distances without having to stop. And all of those things together are basically a big jumble of abilities to allow us to move. And our movement has been basically taken from us over the last few decades. And because of that, we are movement deprived. We talked last time, the very previous episode in part two of this series, about the three types of movement and how we can reduce that movement deprivation, if you will. We talked about exercise, we talked about NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, and we talked about play and why having all three of those are important and then how to put all three of those into your life. We're not going to go over all of that today. If you want to see that and understand that or hear it technically, make sure you go back and listen to those episodes. Today, we're going to talk about different kinds of movement other than physical movement. So at Thrivology, our main focus is, of course, physical movement, exercise, and then encouraging our members to get their neat in and then figure out a way to play so that they can have fun, enjoy their lives, relax, and all of those good things. There are also other kinds of movement within the body, within the human body, that we lack, if you will. And I'd like to talk about three of those kinds. The first one is eye movement. So over the course of the last 30 to 40 years, on average, the instance of myopia, which is nearsightedness, has gone up by five to eight percent every 10 years. So every 10 years over the last about 30 or 40 years, myopia has increased by about five to eight percent. Like I said, myopia is nearsightedness or in other words, the ability to mostly see nearsighted and then the further away things get, they are blurry. Now I knock on wood, twice, um, have had the unique good fortune of having very good eyesight. I don't understand. I mean, I understand what blurriness is, but most people who know me, and this is not bragging by any sense, it's proving the point of what we're talking about. Um, most people who know me say that I have Superman vision, not because I can see through walls, although that would be a cool and maybe not so cool thing at the same time. Um, but because I can see long distances. Uh, nearsightedness allows you not to see, you know, it's different levels for different people. Now, nearsightedness develops for many different reasons. But the question is, why has nearsightedness or myopia increased so much over the last 30 or 40 years? Well, if you think about what's happened over the last 30 or 40 years, not only has our body become sedentary, not only have we literally physically moved less, our eyes have had to move less. In other words, they've had to adjust less. 
we've been stuck in a nearsighted world or where we've been pushed into this nearsighted world, if you will. Um, we have phones right up to our face. We have laptops right up to our face. We have whatever, but tablets, those kinds of things are all right up to our face. Why are you laughing at me, Jana? <laughs> and, and because of that, our eyes are constantly focused on things that are within our, we'll call it a two foot nearsighted distance. Basically anything inside of about two feet is when that myopia really sets in or not sets in, but outside of two feet is when things become blurry for a lot of people who are, have myopia. So what's happening? Well, again, I am no eye doctor by any stretch, optometrist or ophthalmologist or anything to that degree. Um, but I do have some basic understanding of what happens when you look at things close and some and uh, things further away. So please bear with me when I'm explaining this. Um, if you think about the eye as a circle, which if you look at the eye kind of is, um, you have the lens of the eye and the lens of the eye is what you see through attached to that lens are these guy wires, if you will, these wires that come out called zonules, Z-O-N-U-L-E-S. And then on the outside of those zonules is a muscle called the cilia, ciliary muscle, ciliary muscle. So lens, zonules that attach to the cilia, ciliary, man, ciliary muscle. So when you are viewing things that are far away, outside of two feet, definitely, but really far away, that could be two miles, that could be 20 feet, that could be 200 feet. That ciliary muscle will relax or tense based on how close or far things are. Things are really far away, it's going to relax more, therefore the lens is going to be flatter and longer, so it's going to look like that if you're looking <laughs> my my oval, my upright oval is very not good looking, but nonetheless, um, it's going to look like an upright oval, if you will. Whereas when it's contracted, when that ciliary muscle contracts and gets smaller and shrinks, it compresses the lens and makes it bulge out and it becomes more flat and the oval shifts to a lengthwise oval instead of a vertical one and it's bulgy. So I did a great job of describing that, but if you can visualize that in your head, that's what happens when you're looking at things up close or inside of that two foot parameter. The ciliary muscle collapse or contracts, squeezes down on the lens, which bulges the lens and changes, changes its shape. Now, while this is not scientifically proven to be sure, I don't think that it is a coincidence that over the last 30 to 40 years, nearsighted work has increased and myopia has also increased. Pro potentially what's happening here is because we are in a world where a lot of the things are close to our bodies and we're viewing things close up, those, that ciliary muscle, the, that mechanism is becoming, if you will, stuck in that way and the ability to then relax is becoming reduced. So what does that mean? Does that mean that like we're just all going to get myopia? Uh, 
after a certain amount of time? No, I don't think that's necessarily what that means. There are, of course, some things that you can do to potentially overcome this. And of course, at the same time, I could be way off about this theory. It's kind of a theory, but also you kind of go, okay, we've, we've literally, our phones have become the thing that we look at a lot of the time. And that is very close to our face and our eyes have to focus on that. And myopia has gone up at the same rate. So there's, there's gotta be a correlation there, but correlation is not necessarily causation. I realize that. Nonetheless, if there are things we can do, there are things we can do. So what can you do? Well, one is to, last time we talked about movement intervals. So within those movement intervals, in other words, just to review what a movement interval is, it's setting some duration of time throughout the day to get up at a regular interval, be that 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever it is. Within that movement interval, what you can do is look out, either go outside or look out a window to something that is far away from you. So during that time frame, you're viewing things that are also far away and you are forcing the lens and that ciliary muscle to be in a different contraction, not be as contracted or to potentially hopefully be more relaxed if you're viewing something very far. Think of that viewing ability as a continuum. You can view things very close or you can view things very far away and then everywhere in between. And every time you're not viewing that space in between, you're not training it. Now, again, that doesn't mean you have to view at every distance to train yourself, but the more regularly you can train your eyes to view at a longer distance, the hopefully, hopefully, the more, the less likely you will be to develop nearsightedness. So during those movement intervals, getting out and looking either out a window or going outside, if you can go outside and being outside. If you can be outside, that's the preference because not only is viewing long distances important, light, which is our second sort of strategy, is important as well. Um, natural light especially because the light that we have that we're surrounded by is not the full spectrum of light that actually improves our eyes to a degree and improves our eye health. Uh, light from the sun, the full spectrum that comes from the sun, and when, it, when you go outside, it actually improves your eye health and vitamin D that gets in, not, vitamin D doesn't go into your eyes, but is created. Um, also a way to improve eye health as well. So if you can get outside and view long distances and also view the sun, very important for eye health. If you can't get outside, at least look out a window and do that for some amount of time. Um, another important thing to do when it comes to eye health is tracking. So tracking is simply being able to watch a thing at distance move from one side to the other. So if you look in the sky, if you're looking out the window and you look in the sky and you see a bird and a bird's flying by, being able to track the bird as it goes by. What's especially, or would be a bonus, if you will, is if two birds are crossing paths and you're, or they're next to each other and you're able to differentiate between the two, that's also very important. Or if they cross paths and you are watching one and then they cross paths and then you all of a sudden start tracking the other one going in the other direction. So this is all important, not only, not just for distance sake, 
but also for eye movement sake and just eye health in general. Your eye muscles are very important and if you don't use them, you lose them. Not definitely, but you reduce the ability to move your eyes and track things and be able to see near and far. So training that and doing that regularly is definitely important. Um, okay, so that is eye movement or reducing the, the, the inactivity of the eye, if you will, because of nearsighted work. Uh, next, and we talked a little bit about this last time, is metabolic movement. So the idea of metabolic flexibility is being able to use different energy substrates or different kinds of um, things within the body to create energy. So mostly our body uses either carbohydrates or fat to produce energy. Carbohydrates in the form of glucose, fat in the form of lipids. So um, it also will use ketones. That's another important one to have in this flexibility continuum as well. But metabolic flexibility is your body's ability to do those things. And sitting reduces your metabolic flexibility. We talked about it very briefly last time. It reduces your body's ability to clear glucose from the blood. Sorry, I think I need a drink. I'm going to go ahead and do this again. If you saw the last episode, you know why that's funny. So I'm going to sit here for another three seconds. Shameless plug to Thrivology. Um, metabolic flexibility is the body's ability to use different substrates to burn it or to, to create energy. Um, when you're, when you sit for long periods of time, your likelihood of developing insulin resistance increases. Insulin resistance happens when your body does not respond to blood glucose. In other words, your, your body, you ingest carbohydrates, your body releases insulin in order to flush it out and store it into its necessary compartments, and your body is resistant to that. Being resistant, like I said, being insulin resistant then eventually potentially leads to type 2 diabetes. So you want to be able to utilize the food that you take in and the glucose that you have stored, and you want to be able to utilize the fat that, that you have stored. You also sometimes want to be able to utilize ketones if you have to. So having that flexibility is important. So what does that look like? What does improving your metabolic flexibility look like? Well, from a strictly physical standpoint, movement, exercise is a great way to start to do that. If you exercise at different intensities, which we talked about last time, moderate intensity, vigorous active intensity, and high intensity, all of those will use different substrates, if you will, to create energy. And if you use those regularly and you train them regularly, you will train your body for metabolic flexibility. Another way to, to do this is, and I hesitate to say this because it is such a popular thing right now and it requires a whole nother series in itself, which we'll probably do. But another way to do this is with fasting. And by fasting, I, I'll re I'll change my I'll change my what I'm saying to time restricted feeding instead. So fasting 
technically, is anything over 24 hours. Uh, over 24, so 24, 30, 36 hours. That's technically fasting. Time-restricted feeding is eating within a time-restricted window. That can be an 8-hour window, 10-hour, or whatever that looks like. So if you eat within a 12-hour window or smaller, then your body will train itself to be more metabolically flexible. In other words, it will utilize things like glucose and lipids, um, not ketones necessarily if it's just 12 hours, but your body will train itself to use those things more effectively because you're giving it time to clear those things out. You're giving it time to figure things out. Whereas a lot of us will eat late at night, 10 o'clock at night while we're sitting there snacking, and first thing in the morning, we're having coffee with creamer in it or with sugar in it or whatever. So we're like almost constantly feeding ourselves calories to some degree. But if you give your body time to rest, it will train itself to a degree to be more metabolically flexible. So like I said, that window, at least 12 hours of not eating anything with calories, um, potentially 14 hours, that's probably where you start to see the most effect, and then anything less than that is potentially a bonus. Of course, there's a point of diminishing returns with everything, so don't take that to the extreme. Uh, another good thing that you can do is what's called a post, what's called, like the fancy way, fancy thing, postprandial walk. Postprandial simply means a post-eating walk. So when you eat, your body is, already starting to process the things that you eat. It's going to create glucose. It's going to take fats and break them down into lipids. It's going to take proteins, break them down to, into amino acids. And those things will start to shuttle into your bloodstream. If you sit immediately after you eat and you just continue to sit, your body is much less effective at shuttling those things out and clearing those things out of your bloodstream and putting them into the necessary compartments. A 10 to 15 minute postprandial walk will reduce that from, from, yes, reduce that from happening. In other words, just walking for 10 to 15 minutes after you eat will increase your insulin response, if you will, will clear glucose from the blood, will clear blood lipids from the blood more effectively. And that simple strategy, just going for a walk for 10 to 15 minutes after after you eat will help your body's metabolic flexibility to a degree. It's not the magic pill. It's not anything like that. But if you just simply do that, it will help improve a lot. Um, also, you're getting more neat, which is also a great thing. Okay, so that's metabolic flexibility and improving metabolic movement. So, so far we've talked about eye movement and improving the way that our lens works in our eye and training our eye muscles more effectively. That's metabolic movement and improving how our body utilizes glucose and lipids and things like that. The last one that we're going to talk about is your thermostat. So I talk about this indirectly a lot. I talk about cold exposure a lot, prefer more specifically cold water a lot probably more often than most people care to hear about. Um, actually, we're doing a polar plunge tomorrow, so it's a little ironic that I'm talking about this today. Polar plunge, for those of you who don't know and aren't in our area, um, is when you, it's 
there'll be probably be thousands of people there, I assume. But basically, you pay money to jump in a cold pool, an ice bath, essentially, during the winter. This is January 27th today. So tomorrow, January 28th, we are in the nor northern hemisphere. So it's going to be cold outside, and we're paying money to jump into a cold pool. So find the logic in that, if you will. Um, nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless, your thermostat. In the first episode of this series, we talked about evolution through natural selection. Well, there are a couple theories of how natural selection works. And one of those theories is called variability selection. Essentially, vari variability selection is a theory that says human beings selected for traits as they moved around based on the changing environment around them. Not changing in the sense that they stayed in one place and sometimes it was winter and sometimes it was summer, but literally changing in the sense that over periods of time, there were periods where it was really cold and they had to move and they had to go to another location. And then there were periods where it was really hot and they had to adjust accordingly. Now, this isn't within just a human lifespan, to be sure. Remember that evolution happens over tens, hundreds, millions of years. So as these changes happen, things were selected for. Um, one of the things that was selected for was the ability to cool off. We already talked about sweating. Um, that also means that heat is very important for us to to expose ourselves to. On the other end of that, so is cold. Our bodies, because of potentially, potentially the theory variability selection, because of variability selection, our bodies adjusted to the ability to adapt to cold and the ability to adapt to mild and the ability to adapt to heat. In our modern world, we live at 72 degrees give or take a couple degrees, but we live at around 72 degrees. We warm our cars up before we go outside, even if it's a mild 40 degrees outside. Um, I'm sorry, I just rolled my eyes in a very judgmental way, so I apologize for that. <laughs> but we warm our cars up. We, like most of our cars, a lot of our cars are in a garage anyway. We live inside, we work inside, most of us do at least. Um, if we do go outside, like we bundle up, we have lots of clothes. So like our bodies don't really get challenged from a thermogenic standpoint. So it is very important, much more important than we tend to believe to be able to adjust to those temperatures. Not just because you should be able to adjust to them, but because there are lots of processes and mechanisms that are going on that are testing your body and making sure that it knows that it needs to stay at tip-top shape. So, first of all, when you go outside and you are adjusting to the cold, and you're exposed to the cold, and you do that regularly, the activation of a thing called brown adipose tissue, adipose tissue is simply a fancy way of saying fat, so brown fat, brown fat helps warm you up. It helps warm you up through thermogenesis, through literally creating energy. 
which literally means you burn more calories, if you will. So through that thermogenesis, it, it helps warm you up. If you don't test yourself regularly and you are constantly in a state of comfort, your brown fat's ability to do that is diminished. When you do it regularly, not only do you get to burn more calories, it's not a thousand calories a day, but it's at least more. Well, you, not only do you get to do that, but you also will be able to adapt more effectively. Very important, right? Um, so, like I said, it will utilize things like glucose and things like fat. This brown fat on your body will utilize those things to help warm you up when you get into cold. From a heat standpoint, your body releases what are called heat, heat shock proteins. Those things help or are striving to cool you down. Not only is the sweat striving to cool you down, of course that is, but heat shock proteins are also striving to cool you down. And those heat shock proteins increase your tolerance to heat when you expose yourself to heat regularly. So we have trouble with cold because we don't expose ourselves to cold. Um, you hear regularly about, especially people beyond the age of about 50 or 60, being exposed to heat and heat stroke and this, that, and the other thing, which is very real, don't get me wrong, but it is a lot because we don't expose ourselves to heat, we protect ourselves from heat. So if we do those in a sane and controlled and um, realistic manner, we can train our bodies so that we reduce the likelihood of number one, being cold when it's 40 or 45 degrees outside, which is cool, I get, but at the same time, we should be able to be okay with it and not have heat stroke when we're 50 or 60 years old because it's 80 degrees outside and have to stay inside and have to stay under a tree or whatever, like so that we can go live our lives and not be concerned, as concerned at least, about heat-related instances. So exposing yourselves to cold regularly is important. Easy way to do that is cold showers. You can do that every day. You can do that a couple times a week. You should do it, it seems like, about, what I think it's like 12 minutes a week of cold shower exposure is a great way to um, help optimize this process. But, you know, being able to do that regularly is going to help improve your brown fat activation and therefore help your body be able to warm itself up more effectively. The heat, same sort of idea. You could do it every day. Um, you can do it three or four times a week. Probably three or four times a week is gonna be most, effect most effective. A sauna is a great way to do this. Going outside when it is hot for whatever, 10 to 15, 20 minutes at a time exercising outside, making sure that when you do that, that you're doing it in a reasonable manner. All of those things are great ways to help adapt your body to the heat. Understand that cold and heat are not the enemy. It is not, that's on, in a general sense. Of course, extreme cold is and extreme heat is, most definitely. A lot of it is our body's ability to adapt to it. In other words, our lack of thermo movement. So we want to be able to adapt to cold and we want to be able to adapt to heat. And when we expose ourselves to those things, then we create that ability. So that's it. 
Those three types of movement are also ways that you can help improve your health. Eye movement, we wanna improve by looking out a window or going outside, by tracking things in the air or tracking cars going by. Our metabolic movement, we wanna improve our metabolic flexibility so that we can clear blood glucose better, clear lipids from our blood better. And then finally, our thermostat movement, if you will, we wanna be able to adjust to the cold and to the heat. So we want to test those abilities regularly and practice them so that our bodies can do those things and so that we don't have to stay under an umbrella or under a tree when we're 70 years old and we can actually get out and play with our grandkids. All right, that's all I have for today. Make sure that you subscribe, share this with your friends so they get the good news as well. Um, questions before I do that, sorry. Questions, a few questions to think about to wrap it up. Uh, what other types of movement am I neglecting? So this can be anything outside of, you know, your physical body, potentially relationships. Are you not moving your relationships forward in some way, shape or form? Are you not connecting with friends in your professional life? Are you not moving your professional life forward in some way, shape or form? So this is outside of just physical, anatomical or whatever. Uh, how can I start challenging my body more? Very simple question. How can you start to challenge your body from a cold perspective or a heat perspective? And then finally, what's one thing I will implement today to build movement into my life? That question wraps up this whole series on movement. What is one thing you can start to do today? No matter how big or small it is, how impactful it is, how intense it is, what is, what is it that you're going to do Put it on the calendar and then do it. And the sooner you can start doing it, the more likely it is to become something that you do regular. Because remember, the point of all of this is to become the kind of person that wants to improve yourself, that optimizes their health and fitness. And if you can do that, over time, it will become easier. And until next time, my friends, here's to your success in health and fitness mastery.